So we're going to cover verses 3 through 23 here in chapter 14, specifically just addressing God's rebuke or admonition or judgment against the king and kingdom of Babylon. And what I want us to do together is look at this passage through three lenses. So you know like when you go to the optometrist and he puts that big funny thing in front of your face and he goes, better now? How about now? How about now? How about now? What I want us to do is I want to put three lenses in front of your face as we read this passage together and ask you to read the big E on the eye chart. The three passages we're going to, or the three lenses we're going to use is number one, we're going to look at the historical context. And we're going to move through this honestly rather quickly. We're going to look at God's judgment over and of the kingdom and king of Babylon. We'll make our way through these verses again quickly, discussing the content and the historical meaning. Then the second lens I'm going to ask you to put on is a spiritual and theological context. We'll be looking at the thematic theological symbolism that many Bible teachers and theologians find here, specifically in verses 12 through 14. And then the final lens I'm going to ask you to wear is the personal application context. That is, what am I supposed to do now? Or how my life needs to change as a result of what I'm receiving in the Word We'll look at this section and the themes and, and ask that God would have for us personally today. Here's my big main idea. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And you'll see a little bit later, these aren't my thoughts. These are is a direct quote from the scriptures. But God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So let's begin. Verse 3. And, and remember, what lens are we wearing First. Historical context, okay, so what does it mean in history? What did it mean for Isaiah's listeners and hearers back in his day? Verse 3, when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve. Remember, part of Isaiah's job is to admonish the people of God because they had lived in a way that was disobedient to God's law. They, they were not living as the nation and people meant to teach other nations and peoples what it meant to be governed by God. And so part of their discipline is they would come under the authority and control of neighboring nations. And what God is going to do now, he's going to say, but listen, there'll be a time when that discipline is over and things are going to change. And I'm going to pronounce judgment on the neighboring nations who have controlled you. So he, in, at the beginning of verse 3, he's addressing the people of God. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, verse 4, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Any uh, high school TV show or movie uh, plot has this point in it. When the nerds get revenge, right? When those who are oppressed begin to oppress their oppressors, that's what's going on in here. God is going to judge the nations that have come in and enslaved God's people to the point where God's people are going to rise up and they're actually going to taunt. They're going to sing a song of rejoicing over their captors. What we have in the preceding verses is this song of taunt that God's people are going to sing over their oppressors. It's the ultimate nerd revenge moment right here in Isaiah 14. What this also does is it touches on a longitudinal theme of the Bible. The nation of Babylon was so wicked and so defiant to God that they will actually serve as a reference point for the rest of the authors of Scripture when referring to the world, its culture, its values, its idol worship that is opposed to the kingdom of God. 
When Paul writes letters to the churches, he will compare the kingdom of Rome and its wickedness back to the kingdom of Babylon. When the Apostle John receives his vision from Jesus and the book of Revelation as a result of it, he will refer to those kingdoms that rise up against God as the kingdom and nation of Babylon. And so we're dealing with kind of the wickedness, uh, the wicked of the wicked here in chapter 14 and God's judgment of the nation of Babylon. Verse 4 continues. Here, so here's the lyrics to this you know, nerd revenge song that the people of God are going to sing. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, that struck the people in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. Again, the Babylonian culture was one of wickedness and wrath upon the world. Not just the nation of Israel, but upon the world. It's oppression of its neighbors and fellow people. The king and its kingdom, their whole goal was world domination in order to elevate themselves. And so we read that God's going to break the staff of the wicked, the staff that was used to beat the slaves into submission, the scepters of the rulers, which issued decrees to go out and conquer their fellow men and women. Again, Babylon is the great symbol of human defiance toward God, pushing and shoving its way through human history like a high school bully between classes. Verse 7 continues, The whole earth is at rest and quiet, and they break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. At the judgment of this wicked nation, so this will happen in the course of history in 569 BC, the earth finds peace. When this wicked nation is finally judged by God and brought low and humbled, we're told that the earth rejoices, that it finds rest and peace and quiet. That even the trees themselves rejoice. Isaiah using poetic imagery to describe the level and depth of rejoicing that the world will have when the nation of Babylon and its wickedness is brought low. Remember that scene in Wizard of Oz when the house falls on the wicked witch of the West? What do the munchkins do? That's exactly right. Brooke manages our Sunday school department. If that wasn't clear, it is now. But consider, in the course of a nation that wants to dominate the world before the metal age, right? what are they going to be working with? Wood. They're going to build warships. They're going to build lances and spears and weapons. The nation and the army of Babylon was formidable. And so even the trees were told rejoice because now they're their cause of destroying and, and bringing under subjugation their fellow people is brought to an end as a result of God's judgment. Verse 9. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we you have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your cover. If creation and the living will rejoice at the nation of Babylon being judged by God, so too will the dead rejoice at the judgment of the nation of Babylon. This haughty king and kingdom being brought low 
causes those dead kings to rise up and rejoice, crying out, you too have become weak like us. Your attempt to rule the world and to elevate yourself has failed. Now join us in the proper place. My junior high youth pastor used to tell me about the, laps, uh, the, the pot of lobsters or crabs boiling. And as there's a frenzy of, of the crabs you know, boiling, that, that one of them may reach up and manage to grab the edge of the pot. But in the frenzy of trying to rescue all of themselves, the other crabs will ultimately pull them down and, and back into the water that, that no one escapes. Well, the king of Babylon, upon the judgment of God levied against him, will learn what that crab ultimately finds out. That no one escapes the judgment of God. Isaiah references Sheol here. In the Old Testament, this is the place where the Jewish and, and again, the people of, under, of God understood as where the dead would abide. It was a hollow place, they believed, underneath the earth where the dead gathered. The synonyms for Sheol are pit, death, and destruction. And we're told here in this section that the dead, prideful kings from the past will welcome the king of Babylon to themselves. The sound of his parades and parties thrown for his own honor give way to their chance of welcome. The soft cushions and the softest sheets in the kingdom found in his bedroom are given way to uh, maggots and worms for his bedding. There's an image for you. The high and mighty king of Babylon is brought low to the chasm and pit of Sheol under God's judgment. Verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. And I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. What is the chief sin of this king and kingdom? What is the motivating force driving them? Pride. Pride. Verse 14, if you've got a journal or, or, or you're taking notes or, or you're following along on our app, verse 14 is our key verse. It summarizes the folly of this king and kingdom. That his desire is through conquest and destruction to create a throne for himself that is reserved alone for God. Listen again. He will say in his heart, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This king and his kingdom come under judgment because his desire and their desire is to supplant the king of the universe, God himself. Verse 15. Isaiah continues his judgment. And, and as uh, one of our elders said to me this morning, Isaiah is a verbal flamethrower. Listen. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home. 
All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled under foot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. This is sincere and strict judgment from God. One of the things you're concerned about as a leader is the legacy you leave behind. How will people remember you? For God, his judgment is complete warning this king and affirming through the people of God as they rejoice over their oppressor coming under judgment that his legacy will not be secure. That as the other kings of the nations will be buried in golden tombs with all of the pomp and circumstance that goes with a, leader, a faithful leader passing away, he will not receive any of that. Rather, he will be laid low, buried outside in a pit like those with whom his own swords pierced. The judgment of God is complete for the king and the nation of Babylon. Verse 21, prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant descendants and posterity. Again, complete judgment from God. Verse 23. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. The legacy and eternal glory the king sought for himself and for his own kingdom will be wiped away by God. Isaiah uses this language, it will be a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water. That We had some rain this morning, right? The ground is wet, but as the sun comes up, what are those pools of water going to do? They're going to evaporate, right? Like they were never there. That's the judgment God has for the king of Babylon. History tells us that the word of God can be trusted, that this judgment came upon the nation of Babylon in 539 B.C. This is the historical context, that the king and nation of Babylon received judgment from God as a result of their prideful desire to usurp God and his throne in history manage and destroy the world. I mean, essentially, it's the antithesis of what God called humanity to do in Genesis 2, right? If you remember the command of God to go into all of creation, to be, pru- to be fruitful and to multiply, to take dominion over the earth and to produce fl- human and world flourishing. Babylon is the antithesis of that, only seeking to elevate itself and to destroy and control everything else. The king and his kingdom are judged by God because of their wicked pride. That's the first lens. Second lens was what? Those of you who are still paying attention? Spiritual, right? The spiritual and theological symbolism contained within Isaiah 14. Uh, Most Bible uh, 
Commentators, most theologians will see contained within verses 12 through 14 something deeper than just a historical contextual judgment of the king of Babylon. They will actually see in here uh, something deeper than that, a, a spiritual reality having to do with Satan himself. Let's go back to verses 12 through 14. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time together. Verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. And I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Again, theologians and Bible commentators believe that Isaiah here is seeing something or receiving something that is far deeper than just the defeat of one earthly empire. In the fall of the king of Babylon, they see the defeat of Satan, the prince of this world, who seeks to energize and motivate the leaders of the nations, similarly to the king of Babylon. If you know the, the, the story, the highest of God's angels, Satan himself, tried to usurp the throne of God and capture for himself the worship that belongs to God alone. The same sin that the king of Babylon committed. When the Old Testament was transferred, this is kind of a Bible trivia note, when the Old Testament was translated into Latin, the words for day star here or morning star is translated in Latin as Lucifer. So there's that connection. When you hear the word Lucifer, uh, it's connected here to Isaiah 14, uh, verse 12. The day star, right? The day star, or the morning star, which is quickly over, it's kind of that that last uh, bright star right before dawn, right before the sun comes up and kind of eclipses it, and we don't see the stars again until the sun sets and and the rising of the moon, and then we see the stars at night. That's kind of that date, that's the reference to, that that small light that is encapsulated or eclipsed by the large light of the sun. That's that's Satan or Lucifer, the morning star, the, the, the small star that sought to become like the big star, if you will. Ultimately, the name Lucifer indicates that Satan's is ultimately trying to imitate Jesus Christ, who is the true bright and morning star, Revelation 22, 16. Because ultimately, like the king of Babylon, Satan himself is only an imitator of the Most High. The Apostle Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, when he says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan himself, he's only got three tools to use. The first one and primary one that the Bible teaches us is deception. Satan will try to deceive you, to tell you lies, to distort the truth, the same way the king of Babylon did, by trying to make himself and pass himself off as the most high, that if he could control and conquer the world, then he would be a God figure. Satan's first device is to try and deceive you. As Paul says, he disguised himself as an angel of light. What did he do with Eve? We'll talk more about in a minute. In the garden, Genesis 3, right? He lied. He distorted the truth. He asks questions doing this. Did God really say? His second device is to distract you. To present you some sort of glory or temptation 
that seems in the moment to be greater than God himself. And to take your eyes off the greatest one, Jesus, and to place your eyes on something else, whatever that might be, to distract you. And then the final one is to discourage you. Deceive, distract, and then finally to discourage you. If he can't deceive you and he can't distract you, then he will discourage you. He is the great accuser, the father of all lies. And he will bring up your past sin and cause you to doubt the extent of God's grace and mercy for you. Like the king of Babylon, Satan will one day be humiliated and defeated. He too will be cast out of heaven and finally ultimately cast into hell in Revelation chapter 20 verse 10. See, whether God is dealing with kings or created angels or even people, James 4, 6 reminds us, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What's our final lens? Personal application. So what? So God judged a historical king who was wicked. So what? So there's a spiritual reality in which Satan tries to puff himself up as the Most High, tries to deceive me, tries to distract me, tries to discourage me. So what? Look at verses 13 and 14 again. What is the great folly of the king of Babylon? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. What is the chief sin of the king? Pride. What is the motivating force driving his kingdom? What has been at the heart of sin since Genesis 3? Pride. You see, before we distance ourselves from the king of Babylon and say, well, that's just one guy and one kingdom in the midst of history, before we dismiss Satan as just a foolish caricature, we need to recognize that the same sin and temptation that they fell into lies at our own hearts as well. That from the beginning... Our desire has been to supplant God and make ourselves like the Most High. From our first parents, Adam and Eve, this was the root of their sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, only then she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband, who was where, gentlemen? With her. That's a whole other sermon, but with her, and he ate. When did Eve commit the sin? Only after she saw that the food was a delight to the eyes, it was good for her food, it would satisfy her flesh, it was pleasing to her eyes, and then here's the trick. It was desired to make one Wise. What does that mean? It means she wanted to achieve a higher level of self than God had granted her. 
Satan's lie says you will not surely die, but you will be like God. What was Eve's temptation? To become like God. From Genesis 3 forward, we have struggled when we sin because we think we know better than God. Which is rooted in an overestimation of self. Pride. The Apostle John will describe it this world, this way in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, listen to this, the desire of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Do you hear the parallels between 1 John 2, 16 and Genesis 3? The woman saw that the, food, that the fruit of the tree was good for food. It was pleasing to her flesh. It was going to taste good. It was attractive to her eyes, and it was going to make her more wise, more than what she was. And listen to John's words again. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Sin is rooted in desiring to be in the place of God and elevating ourselves beyond our standing. When the world cries out, we know better than God's design. We know better than God's will. We know better than God's ways. We as the church, we're quick to judge, and yet we fall into the same trap all the time. When we choose to deviate from God's wills and ways and word. It's the same trap. Only we should know better. Only we should know better. So I've got some warnings about pride. I like lists. I think they're fun, so I made one for you. This will be in your app, so don't try to follow along or jot down or get a cramp or carpal tunnel, and then you send me a letter, and it's just a mess. So <laughs> I put them all in the app. I, if, if, you, if you don't have the app... Get in contact with the church, I'll, I'll send you the list. But here we go. Here, here's some warnings about pride. And again, I warned you this morning, today's kind of a sobering message. It's cloudy, it's rainy, it's moist. We all just want to cuddle underneath a blanket with a hot cup of soup, right? So it's kind of like a, a low, sobering message today. Here we go. Uh, number one, pride leads to shame. Again, the, if the goal of pride is to elevate myself to greater glory, the Bible tells us explicitly clear, gives us examples that ultimately pride doesn't lead to the glory that we want to attain for ourselves. It really just leads to shame and disgrace. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble, there is wisdom. Pride ultimately leads to the opposite of that which it desires. It doesn't lead to glory. It leads to shame and disgrace. Again, when you try to elevate yourself to the throne of God, you can't sit there. And so you end up at the table without a chair. Pride leads to arguments. Proverbs 13.10, By insolence, or pride, comes nothing but strife or arguments, but with those who take advice is wisdom. By pride or insolent comes nothing but strife. Think about to the most recent you argument you had. Weren't you sure you were right? Weren't you sure they were wrong? Now you may have been, and they certainly may have been. But you know the thing that being right affords you? It affords you permission to be humble, never to be prideful. I mean, consider, we could go outside, you and I, 
And I could yell at the sky all morning and tell you that it's purple when you know that you're right when you assert that it's blue. Is there any need for you to be prideful in that moment? No, because clearly I'm wrong. Yet pride leads to strife and arguments. Why? Because ultimately it's not about being right for us. We want to elevate ourselves over the other who we think is wrong. This is the language we use. It's my way or the highway. Take it or leave it. Bible warns that pride ends in destruction. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The king of Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon testify to this great truth. As a sobering warning from the scriptures that pride comes before destruction. Pride cuts us off from God. Pride cuts us off from God. Luke chapter 18, verse 14. Listen to Jesus' own words. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who seeks to exalt himself, to trust in himself, his pursuits, his passions, his own pride, will be humbled. But the one who's willing to humble himself will be exalted. Again, this is the inversion of the kingdom, the upside-down kingdom we might call God's kingdom, where pride leads to destruction and humility leads to exaltation. Then the Apostle Paul warns us in Romans chapter 3, verse 27, that boasting that there's no place for pride in our Christian life. Romans 3, 27 then what becomes of our boasting or our prideful exclamation or talking about ourselves, it is, what's that word? Excluded. Why? Because the gospel we believe in states that our salvation is wholly dependent upon the works of another and has nothing to do with what I can do for myself. But the entirety of my being and the grace and mercy of God is wholly dependent upon the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. It is his efforts that gets me home, not my own. And so my boasting is excluded. What do I have to boast about that God has not given me? What have you been able to muster and create in your own Christian life if you were to seriously consider it for a moment? Is not all that we have a gift of grace from God, from another. When we boast, we boast of Jesus Christ. Nothing more. Further, God reveals himself to the humble. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says this in verse 28 and 29, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things that are. Verse 29, why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There's a kick in the old self-esteem, right? What's our description before God gets a hold of us? We are low and despised. We are not. But God reaches down and rescues us and brings us to exaltation and glory. Why? So that no being might boast. It is not a matter of your status or position that gets you saved. It is only a matter of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God reveals himself to the humble. 
Continue on. Pride is not compatible with a life lived by the Spirit. The pieces just, they, they, they just don't fit together. Galatians 5, 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Pride is not compatible with a life lived by the Spirit. If you are struggling and wrestling with pride and its symptoms, it is because you are engaging more of the flesh and less of the Spirit. A life truly lived by the power of the Spirit will not result in prideful boasting, but humility. And then ultimately, as a final warning, Proverbs 16.5, pride will be punished. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. The end of human pride, the end of the human pursuit that declares, I know better than God, ends in judgment and destruction. The king of Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon are a first-hand testimony to that truth. Anybody planning a summer vacation to Babylon this year? Why? Because God kept his word and he wiped them off the face of the earth. Kingdoms and cities are built upon their kingdoms and cities. That's how low God brought them. So what's our answer? What's our hope? The antidote to our pride is humility. The antidote to our pride is humility. I'll borrow from pastor and author C.J. Mahaney here because I haven't found any words defined better. Humility is defined this way. It is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. It is a spiritual looking in the mirror and being honest. It is an honest assessment of ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And if you are willing to pursue humility this morning, you can avoid the destruction that, await, that, that the king in the kingdom of Babylon experienced in history past and that awaits Satan and his minions in the future. But it must start with an honest assessment of ourselves in light of God's holiness and sinfulness. And if you want to avoid this destruction, if you want to avoid the judgment, if you want to avoid all the things I just listed, you must believe two things and you must do one thing. Number one, you must assess yourself honestly in light of God's holiness and admit your sinfulness. But don't worry, you're, you're not alone. For all who follow Jesus here, start here, admitting our brokenness and sinfulness, our inability to change on our own power. That's the first thing you must believe. Number two, you must believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as your only means of salvation. That Jesus, through the cross, endured the destruction that our pride deserves and gifts us the life and blessing that his humility earned. This morning, if you will believe these two things, the final thing you must do, you must commit yourself to him. The Bible speaks of this in different ways, but in each case it's clear. It involves an act of our will. It says that we are to believe in Jesus, which means we are to place ourselves in his hands. 
and to avoid the fate that the king of Babylon experienced and awaits Satan this morning, we must believe these two things and do this one thing. Let me pray for you, church. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Isaiah, God, and his faithful ministry to deliver hard and difficult truths. I pray, God, that as I have tried to do the same for your people, that the words that I have spoken, God, that are of you, you will implant in their hearts. God, I pray for the pride that is so easily present in us as people. I pray that you would bring us reminders, God, that we are dependent upon your grace and mercy. That you give us the courage to really look in the spiritual mirror and admit who we are. And that, God, you would send your spirit to comfort us and to reassure us of your grace and mercy, God, that you have loved us even as we are. Father, may we be a church that boasts of nothing but your mercy. May we take no pride in our accomplishments. But again, as I prayed earlier, we desire nothing more than to give you the glory. God, I pray for each heart in this room that you would give them the courage to honestly look in the mirror, confess their pride, to follow you in humility. Would you be with us now as we worship, Father? We ask this in Jesus' name.